Independent. Expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Good evening. Welcome to Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. Tonight on Independence Day, Nick Babetsky of Plaid Elephant Management. Babetsky loves independent music and he pulls no punches when talking about the changes in the business. His dynamic company, Plaid Elephant, provides artists with a wide range of services from consulting to music management, music supervision, and music licensing. He has watched the industry change around him and kept abreast of the latest trends in how artists are using new channels to find their audience. Babetsky's got a lot to say about how artists can successfully navigate the new model and get themselves heard. Welcome to Independence Day, Nick. Happy to have you. Thanks, Joe. Happy to be here. Yeah, man. It's a hot, it's a hot, hot evening in, uh, in the city of Pasadena and all of Los Angeles. And you, you, typical traffic coming across town, but we made it. Everybody's happy. It's <laughs> cool. It. We're going to hear uh, we're gonna have a lot of fantastic music tonight, man. You guys, you represent three different bands, uh, which are, the names are, I'm sorry, Emily Jane White, uh, The Dead Trees, and The Milk Carton Kids. And these Now, you, what is exactly your relationship with these groups? You are a super music supervisor for them? You're music management? Like, what, what are you doing with these guys? Sure. Um, yeah, I have those three bands. I have some others as well, including uh, The White Buffalo <clears throat> and a couple other that I'm developing right now. But I'm, I'm their fully functioning music manager. Okay. So I, I operate in kind of across the board all uh, basically handling everything for them. That's cool. Uh, that a manager would. And in ter- you mentioned music supervision and licensing. I, I do pitch a lot of music as well. I have relationships in that world, so I pitch the music as I can, but uh, I function as their yeah. music manager. And as far as revenue streams for you, like all the different things that you do, you know, the plaid, and the, the plaid elephant <laughs> moniker, it seems like it's just kind of a a blanket that covers anything that you do. You just run things through there. Like what, right. what, you know, what percentages of your revenue stream comes from what? Like, you know, where, where's, what's your bread and butter? Right. I mean, I, I, I started it a year ago and the priority was, was managing artists and developing artists. Um, that's the primary function. <clears throat> um, because of my background, uh, I was at Milan Records for years, which was a primarily a soundtrack record label. I do a bit of music supervision, um, focusing primarily on independent films. <clears throat> so I pitch a lot as well. I wanted to bring that service not only to the bands that I manage, but also beyond that to other bands who need help in that world. So I do offer that service for music that I love that I may not be able to take on in full capacity uh-huh. to manage, but to help support and develop those artists in the licensing world uh, right. as I can. <clears throat> but uh, management is the primary function and the primary. It's what's making me rich. Yeah, of course, <laughs> making, the, making the big bucks, right? But I guess that's my question. I mean, I'm not looking for like actual numbers right, of right. what you're making doing this, right. but like what, what, what pays your bills the most out of these things? Because that's one big challenge now right. is how do you monetize this new music model or lack of model or environment? You know, the old model, you know, let's, maybe we should back up just a step. Let's do that. Uh, one of the first, my very first conversation with you, you used the same exact metaphor that I've been using for years to describe the state of the music business as it stands right now. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It just is what it is. And that's uh, the, the dinosaur metaphor is what mm-hmm. I call it. Like the record labels, the big labels, they're, they're like dinosaurs. You know, the, the, maybe the meteor has hit, and, but they're still lumbering around. They don't know <laughs> that they're dead, but they're kind of like the walking dead. And you use the same exact metaphor. Right. You know, maybe expound on your version of that a little bit. Sure. Well, I came from the label world, like I mentioned. I was, it's been eight and a half years at Milan Records, which is an indie label through Warner Music. So as I was 
learning and being educated in the music industry in general, I was seeing both the independent side and the major label and major distribution side. And as I was starting to label manage some artists on Milan Records, as well as work in the licensing world and film soundtracks and whatnot, um, I started to see that, you know, the record label dynamic was a very stressful one that you mentioned, you know, the dinosaurs operating as a record label or as a distributor of recorded music was a very scary one as the climate was changing. However, being in the music business was very exciting. Yeah. And for me, that's why I wanted to get into management was because I didn't want any limitation of what I could do for bands I was trying to develop. Yeah. Um, you know, I, of, I wanted it to... unshackles you. You know, if, if you're sure. with a label, you know, labels, especially big labels, they're not just like any big company. They're not very dynamic. They tend to mm-hmm. change slowly. There's an institutional culture and the way that they do things. And even in the music business, you know, especially how corporatized it's become in the past 20 years, mm-hmm. you know, even for being in the music business, maybe they're not as dynamic as people would perceive them as being. It's a lot of money. And now and you've got a lot of people who, you know, this is something that comes up on the show a lot. It seems there's people who aren't music lovers running the show. They're business majors. Right. You know? Right. Did you encounter that? Or, I mean, um, I guess you were at Milan, which is probably a little more dynamic. Yeah. I mean, we had, you know, we were working music that we loved and that we wanted, and we didn't have any other entities dictating what we should or shouldn't be working. Yeah. Um, but I think that, no, it's a good point. I think that I mean, there are a lot of people that function with the dollars and cents and, there are a lot of people that function and kind of plan everything out by heart. <laughs> by, I'm sorry, by following their heart. Right. And, I, and I think that that's – it's just a different mentality depending on what kind of person you are and what your goals are. And I think that it exists in a label world. I think a lot of labels, you know, to rewind also to your original point, I mean, labels, they're adding management. They're adding different yeah. things More that they can bring to the table. More levels of management. Right. The hard thing is – and then you get into the whole 360 deal that majors are doing for the most part in some indies now as well. And that, for the uninitiated, is it's a deal where the label is not just a music label anymore. It provides the traditional service of a label. They own, they kind of work with your merchandising. They work with your touring. They work with every aspect of your, that's why it's 360, right? It's 360 degrees of your of your career. Exactly. And there's two very kind of different perspectives on it. One is that they're, they're taking, 360 meaning exactly that, they're taking a piece of the entire pie. Um, and the two different perspectives, which I agree a bit with both, is one, they're actually offering services across the board, like you're mentioning. They're actually offering... Diversification is what we call that in business school. Right. And they're, they're, they're saying, you know, we're putting money into your merch. We have designed people on staff to do that. We have people to help with your tour, to help with that whole situation. The, the argument against it is the labels are shrinking, the manpower is shrinking. So they're saying they're offering all these additional services, but how can they be... You know, Lady Gaga is a perfect example. That's a, th- a true 360 as far as I'm, and that's my understanding. And it works for her because she needed the full machine behind her. Because she came out of nowhere, it exactly. seemed like to me. I, right. It was like I, I, I don't – I went away to college in Boston in a, a one, once upon a time, a long time ago, and – I was just, I was in music school, so I was practicing all the time, and I wasn't listening to anything other than what I had in my little cassette tapes, right? And when I got back to Chicago after the semester was over, all of a sudden, Paula Abdul was everywhere. Right. And I had no idea who this person even was. You know, and, and that's kind of how, I, but I didn't go anywhere. All of a sudden, I woke up one day, and everybody's Lady Gaga this and Lady Gaga that. Right. I never even heard of her, and then all of a sudden, she was the biggest thing going. Right. So, right, right. So, for that, for her, she needed to hit big out of the box. <clears throat> that's the idea. And that's why the 360 is really beneficial for her. 
For another artist, it means that it could possibly take too much revenue out of where artists traditionally made revenue in touring and merch yeah. to the extent that they can't survive. So there's there's just a very different side yeah. to take on that issue. Yeah, in her case, it seems to me that they're pitching her as a celebrity, not just a musician. I mean, she's as talented. A brand, yeah, right. she's a brand. She's a celebrity. Um, you know, like Madonna is started out as a musician or you know whatever term you would like to use, but then kind of turned into a celebrity. She's famous for being famous. Mm. You know, the music is just kind of a medium that she started with. And she does right. acting. And Lady Gaga, I'm assuming, is... I mean, I know she's she's got talent. Sure, she's an entertainer. She's an entertainer, yeah. but she's a celebrity. Right. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's a personality. She's an entertainer. And it goes beyond the music. And yeah. that but, machine behind her is why she is where she is. If she was yeah. at a small indie label, it wouldn't have been the same path, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's almost like her life is performance art. Right. You know, mm. so with that, I'd like to give our listeners a taste a little bit of what you bring to the table, which is uh, one of the artists that you work with, which sure. is Emily Jane White. Sure. And she's fantastic, man. Um, this, Thank uh, you. Yeah, the she's The track she brought in, it's, it's really nice and it's quiet and calm. Mm. And in my insane universe that I live in, I like calm, quiet music. So I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to hear that, you know, and, and she's, she, you know, she's got a label, though. She's... She kind does, of part of the old model. Um, I actually met her. Uh, I released her last record um, <clears throat> on Milan, I guess, probably almost two years ago. Um, she has a label in Europe right now. We're looking for a label here, and we may do a self-release as well. Mm -hmm. um, with her, she's an interesting dynamic because she's from here. She's from the Bay Area in California originally, but she spent most of her musical career in Europe um, really connecting there. Okay. And that's something that a lot of artists have done more and more over time. Josh Ritter is an example of that. He's a guy who grew up in Idaho, moved to New York, you know, struggling, struggling, playing the same little clubs. And somehow or another, he got his music got into Ireland mm -hmm. and he became huge. And so then he would live in New York in this like dumpy little apartment, not making any money for playing the same shows over and over again in New York. But then he'd fly to Ireland and tour around like in a nice bus and people would go crazy. Yeah. For Josh Ritter in Ireland, and then he, that's where he kind of then he kind of reintroduced. Like Hendrix did that even. Right, Hendrix was huge in England before he was big here. Right, and I think well also with her, you know, her music is. I mean, it's dark folk, but it also has yeah. this Americana element. I hate that term, but it. Yeah, people at least understand it, so I use it. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, I know. There's you can call it what you want. There's like six names for that genre. Right, and like in the, and in Europe, they they're looking for you know American music. Like what is yeah. that? Like they know the pop stuff, but they mean like roots American stuff. I remember yeah. I, I were. Uh, worked with The Devil Makes Three, and they told me a story where they uh, they were in Germany and this on the radio, and this German radio uh, DJ said to them, like, how do you feel about introducing us to American music? And they were like, what? <laughs> You're like, we're just playing our music. We're not, yeah, that's yeah. not our intention. But I think for them, they're starved for truly kind of, it's why, I mean, country music in Germany is huge right now. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why a lot of folk and American and Americana artists here do very well there. Jayhawks, example. Yeah. For some reason, the Jayhawks, for them, it's Spain. Of all places, the Jayhawks, you know, when they were kind of mothballed for years and years, would, but they would still get together. I'm assuming it was just a money gig, hmm. and they would all fly to Spain and play a couple dates there and make a big pile of cash and come back. And, and be in Spain. Yeah, and, yeah, and be in Spain, which <laughs> are worse places to be. So let's get to this. This is Emily Jane White with the song, Oh, Catherine. This is from her yet-to-be-released record, which is going to be called Ode to Sentience. Do we have a release date on this? Uh, not yet. It's already out overseas. Okay. And you can find it online, um, but we're uh, we're still putting together the domestic plan. She must have a website. She does, emilyjanewhite.com. Emily Jane White, the traditional <laughs> spelling of all three names, I take it. It is. All right. This is Emily Jane White with Oh, Catherine on Independence Day. Oh, 
Sonorous Sounds, Emily Jane White here on Independence Day, and she is represented by the guy I have in the studio with us here tonight, Nick Babetsky of Plaid Elephant. And if you want to learn about what he's up to, everybody's got the website these days, www.plaidelephant.com is where you can find out what he's going, what he's got going on in the music business, which is quite a bit. Uh, and if you find out what, what we're going on, uh, so excuse me, if you would like to find out what we've got going on in the music business, and by we, I mean we here at Independence Day, we've got a brand new website you can check out at indepday.com, I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y.com. And we are consolidating our media universe. We are also at Twitter, at Day and Facebook.com slash Day. We just got all that lined out this week. We had the Twitter and finally bought the URL, so now we're... Now we're ready for our moral domination plan. It's official. Yeah, one uh, one good music listener at a time, man. And like I said, we've got Nick Babetsky here tonight. We're talking about music management, music supervising, music licensing, um, you know. And it's it's easy to hang out with you, man. You're a very relaxed guy, which is a pleasant. We were just talking on the break there when the song was playing how, you know, L.A. is different from other cities. And mm. it's nice to, you know, for being as laconic as L.A. can kind of be, there's a lot of really like wired people in the business too. Maybe it's the cocaine, but um, <laughs> but it's nice to be in your presence because you're a calm guy and oh, we'll have a good you. conversation. So again, likewise, welcome. This is fun. Thank you. Yeah, Happy man. to be here. So Emily Jane White, that's really nice. I mean, that's very uh, very Nick Drakey. Mm. Yeah, you know? she definitely has that somber perspective. Yeah, she writes really personal stories and. And if you, I mean, anytime you put a cello on an acoustic, a finger-picked acoustic guitar thing, it automatically sounds like Nick Drake, I think. You know, he can, like, everybody had their, like, watershed moment of, like, their one thing they little brought, like, Bruce Springsteen in the glockenspiel. Sure. Like, now every time you use a glock, it's like, somehow you're, like, tipping your hat to, to Springsteen in some funny way. But she, you know, the, the cello thing. And, and there's, there are worse people to be compared to than Nick Yeah, Drake. absolutely. But enough of my yakking. Let's hear more about you, man. Sure. How, you know, you've been, in, you said you're from Western Massachusetts. That's right. When, uh, what brought you to Los Angeles? <clears throat> uh, I was. Uh, I went to school in upstate New York at Ithaca College, and they had an LA program, and it was between LA and London. And I knew I wanted to be in music, and uh, they had an LA program where you would come out here, and it would be designed around an internship as well as some classes. And I interned at Universal Music Group as well as and in dis- UM, uh, UMVD and distribution, <clears throat> and then uh, at Milan Records, where they hired me when I graduated at the end of the semester as their marketing manager. And, That's cool, man. And I stayed. Yeah, I went home for a couple weeks and. Got my Western Mass fill and came back out. Yeah. And how long ago was that? Uh, it was January. Oh, sorry. It was May 02. So. Yeah. Uh, and coming up on uh, a year, coming up on a decade. Yeah. Wow. Seems like only They say yesterday. that you can call yourself a local if you're here for 10 years. Yeah. It's kind of scary. Yeah. You feel you've been a naturalized <laughs> Los Angelino. Uh, yeah. I've tried to maintain my integrity. Are you a, t- <laughs> are you a taco truck guy? I, d- I love food trucks. I oh, think yeah. that's the... That's like the demarcation the line, I think. Is like if you're, because I, I still, I still haven't bought into that. Oh really? Being a Chicago guy, I mean, I have nothing against the food trucks. That the food's great. I've had them, but right. I'm used to like sitting down. I know there's the whole culture with like the sitting on a, you know, I don't know, a guardrail or whatever when you eat your taco or whatever right. you're having your curry taco. <laughs> um, but like you know, in Chicago after the shows, you go out to a f- all night taco joint. And then you sit down, right. you get like a giant cereal bowl full of salsa. I rant about this constantly. I mean, the <laughs> I, weather sucks. I'm happy I'm in Los Angeles, so I'm, you know, I'm not complaining. I don't know. I had a late night in Chicago, and I poured out, I tumbled out of the bar, and it was 4 a.m., and I ate, I inhaled like fried Twinkies on the streets. And yeah. I'm there was, sure. There was some Chicago, you know, nitty gritty uh, food popping up. <laughs> yeah. Was it frozen solid, or was it a pleasant time it of was, year? Uh, it was Fourth of July weekend. Oh yeah, there's there's not a <clears throat> yeah. better weekend for the city of Chicago, man. Yeah, it was nice. So again, 
bringing it back, Emily Jane White. How did you get hooked up with her? Uh, I met her actually through The Devil Makes Three, who I was working with at Milan Records. Um, and Emily was a friend of theirs. <clears throat> and I had seen her open a couple shows up in San Francisco. And we just got talking. And she had she had released a record on a small label, uh, I, I guess probably almost two years earlier. And what happened was she released the record, but then basically split for Europe and promoted it over there and spent uh-huh. all of her time there. So she was developing her audience there, <clears throat> and she had this new record, which she had a label overseas. She needed to release it here. It was called Victorian America, incredible record. And um, I just fell in love with it, and she's a wonderful person, and we just started working together. And the record did okay, but she wasn't here. She was in Europe. So it didn't really connect like it so deserved she was, to. she was living in Europe? Yeah, well, touring mm-hmm. basically constantly there. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and then with this record, you know, I, w- I was departing the label. She and I got along well, and it was just a matter of figuring it out and seeing what her real plan was. And the first thing I said to her was, you know, you need to really be here and be present to develop a fan base here because even though you're from here, you haven't played shows here in years, and we need to do it the right way, which is, you know, touring, sharing the music, connecting with your fans, and doing it, you know, building your foundation like she had done in Europe, but doing it here where she's from. Does she go out by herself, like in a car? She's a flexible. Van? It depends. She's usually with one, um, at least a guitar player with her as well. She plays a guitar live as well, but uh, she at least has one multi-instrumentalist or something with her. But in Europe, she's out with a five-piece. Wow, that is doing well. Yeah. You can afford to bring a five. Now, does she play with European musicians when she's over there? Or does she bring people over from the States? Uh, both, but primarily she comes with people with her from the States. Yeah. yeah. I know Calexico. I did an interview mm-hmm. earlier this year with uh, John Convertino, one of the co-founders, the drummer. And I, I didn't know this. I'm not sure how this detail escaped me, but like two or three members of that band still live in Europe. <laughs> like I know a lot of bands in the States, and we'll get to this, you know, one of the other bands. Actually, the next band, we'll get to one in just a second, but I want to hear a little more from uh, Little Miss White here before we move on to the sure. next band. But it's it's not uncommon now, you know, with technology being what it is, for people and bands to live in completely different cities, but different countries, right. different continents. Right. That's the first, I had no idea that a band like Calexico could hmm. could pull that off, I mean, right. at their level. Yeah, I mean, I think it just depends on what their dynamic is, you know? Yeah. Some bands want to rehearse every week, some bands yeah. go months without it, and yeah. the songwriting process is different for everyone, and it just yeah, depends yeah. on what, how much proximity actually man, uh, matters. Yeah, because they're in Tucson <clears throat> these days, so it's like mm-hmm. Tucson and then Germany. Hmm. I mean, it just seems like such a Funny. Kind of weird convergence there, but let's let's play a little bit more. This is a song called "The Cliff." This is also Emily Jane White. We're going to talk over this a little bit, but I want to cool. I want to kind of establish it first. So this is also from that yet to be released record. Mm-hmm. Um, and will this come out on a? Did I ask you this? Or will this come out on an actual label here? You're still looking for one, did you? We're still talking. Uh, it okay. depends. I mean, we're putting together a plan to self-release, which I'm a huge advocate of, mm-hmm. if done the right way. <clears throat> but we are talking to labels. Now, as will well. you self-release an actual physical product? Uh, behind you... a tour, yeah. The okay. idea would be probably do a di- do digital, build the buzz online, work uh-huh. with uh, an ind- indie-minded publicist in mm-hmm. uh, in radio, <clears throat> and bas- in non-com radio, and develop you know strong word of mouth, get people excited about it, yeah. and then tour behind it. And at that point, it makes sense to release physical product. Yeah, because when you're at a show, I mean that's that's when you get people, and that's when you actually make money from it too, right. because you're you're not paying the distribution chain; you are the distribution chain carrying the product in the, your trunk. Right, <laughs> right, right, exactly. Or the, below the bus or right. wherever, you know. Right, and if your live show is compelling, which hers is, uh-huh. you know, that that's you you sell a ton of merch because the people are connecting, they're present, yeah. they see you live, they you know, and the size rooms that she'll be playing, you know, she'll really connect with the audience. Yeah. It'll be an intimate affair. So I think, you know, 
yeah. having physical product makes a lot of sense and, and something like that. And that's the value of physical product now mm-hmm. because it now it becomes a token. It's not just what you bought at Best Buy. Mm-hmm. It's something you got at a particular show, maybe where you discovered that artist. And becomes, a lot of the time the artist is handing it to you. Yeah, you know? exactly. And you, you know, it's, a, it's right. like a, a reminder uh, token, a very specific token of something that you experience. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So let's play a little bit of this. This is The Cliff from Emily Jane White. to Emily Jane White for Independence Day, we've got the manager, Nick, or, uh, yeah, with us, Mr. Babetsky, Nick Babetsky. Yes. And um, this is nice. I mean, I hate to call somebody out, but somebody's been listening to Harvest, it sounds like. <laughs> and that's, it, 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 she's. I'm assuming she's kind of young, and to hear that young yeah. people are even know what that album is sure. fills my heart with pride and joy. <laughs> well, it's funny. I think, you know, a lot of that, that era, you know, Neil Young was hugely influential, and you look at how he crossed between rock and folk and country, you know, and all, and like you look at what like Dylan did in the same way. And I think that we're in an era where bands could do that more. Yeah. <clears throat> it's a, it's not a genre specific an era yeah. as it has been. Yeah. And when with, with Neil specifically, it's almost as if there was no line. Right. He, well, the best there never was. Yeah. Right? He just invented what he did and yeah. just did it. Yeah. And whatever he was doing was what he was doing. That mm. was, that was just Neil Young. Yeah. I always felt like he was, he was kind of the, like, not the counter Neil Young as if, or I mean, the counter Bob Dylan, not, not like the anti-Bob Dylan. Right. But like, you know, because Dylan was always great, but he was kind of his own rarefied air. But then Neil Young had this gravitas mm-hmm. and this haunting. Mm-hmm. It's for, it's all that F, uh, uh, what is that chord? It's like F major seventh that he plays. Right, like the diminished. Yeah, all, yeah. but he, it's, in, it's in half his songs. And right. it's, it's, it's so haunting. And then that haunting right. voice he's got, like, right. you know, because Dylan wasn't afraid to make a caricature of himself where Neil... You know, was he reined it in, or just right. that was just his personality? Well, it's funny. I always, I always look at that. I mean, I, I, I always struggle with my own like musical pretension, <laughs> where yeah. I, you know, I, like, I judge. I'm like, that person's contrived. You're like, that, <laughs> that artist is like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't buy what they're selling. I don't think that's the real person. Yeah. And I've always felt like I've gravitated toward like real musicians. Yeah. But I think that's a part of it, right? I mean, Dylan, he was a sponge, and he was he was always morphing into something new and something different. And at this point for me, that's why I admire him. I think yeah. Neil Young probably, but who knows? I mean, you say that like he always did what he did because he wanted to. You know, he well, walked, he experimented too. He had that right. whole trans period, which I don't think to this day anybody understands except for the most hardcore Neil Young fans. Right. And like, you know, Dylan talked about making records as kind of a, a middle finger to his label, right? Because yeah. he was like, I just, I don't want to make this record. I'm going. I'm going to make it horrible. Yeah. I mean, there's that start. What is that? Is it not Omar? Oh, I don't remember which one. But he. He. Self, and, I, it was yeah. in his book. Yeah. Uh, he Chronicles, talked about yeah. 
making intentionally yeah. the crappiest record he could make just right. to see if the label would put it out. And they did, and people loved it. And it was like, what do you do when you're that point? Can't like, do anything wrong, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, your poop doesn't stink. Right, right. But I think, yeah, like, you know, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, I don't actually, I don't know if Emily was directly influenced by Neil, but I'm sure she was. And I think what he tapped into was that really honest American sound that a lot of people are doing right now. Yeah. And I think that's, it's huge. And people aren't even looking at genres. You look at like Florence and the Machine or Mumford and Sons or, yeah. <clears throat> you know, that kind of thing, which is, they're basically playing like old roots music. Florence is a little different, but like something yeah. like Mumford and Sons or Yvette Brothers or, you know, any of that. It's, 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 it's having a resurgence now. Yeah. And that, that, that pleases me greatly because we got so far away from it, it seems. You know, we've cycled through uh, it's something, you know, you came on an event we did on KPCC just a couple weeks ago called Jam and Banter with Leftover Cuties Were a Musical Act. And we talked about this idea. You brought this to my attention, this idea of narrow casting, mm-hmm. how bands, um, when they go to find their audience, you know, it's not like tree reproduction where you cast this huge wide net with a million seeds and like maybe it'll, it'll grow here, there or whatever. Like now with the Internet and other technology, you can really focus in on where your fans are because there are people out there who are rabid for that kind of music. And we'll pay, right. you know, and that's where your gold mine is. You know, maybe not your gold mine like it used to be for Zeppelin, right. but you know, most a lot of musicians would just be happy to be able to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And, to, and, and a lot of musicians just want to reach their fans. You know, I mean, every yeah. every musician wants to be able to afford food, but yeah, you know, there, there's that element of like, how do you truly reach people? And you know, and it's it's a, it's a different approach. It's like you know, if you have big money, the marketing you do is in essence shoving it down people's throat. If you don't have big money, it's a matter of enabling possible fans to experience your Mm -hmm. music and appreciate it. And to me, like, that's the majority of the artists that I work with, you know, the White Buffalo, Emily Jane White, Dead Trees, the Mill Carton Kids. It's that approach. It's like we want to have the music heard as much as possible. Yeah. Um, We have the confidence that it's good. It's (laughs) building something. Yeah. it's And it's also, you know, for fans, they feel like they're. They're not. Their arm isn't being twisted. They, they're like, I like. You know, the fan is basically feeling they like this. They naturally gravitate toward it, yeah. and then it ends up meaning some, meaning more to them than if they just heard it eleven times on radio. Yeah. No offense, radio. No offense to radio. No, it's all right. Radio. <laughs> radio's in a weird place, man. It's 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 growing at the same time that you know the, the whole. I think the storm with the the Clear Channel thing has mm-hmm. maybe passed a little bit, um, and because people have. I don't say they've abandoned mass market radio because it's certainly out there still. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the internet radio right. and podcasting, and there's so many different ways for people to get their content. And mm-hmm. with the generation that's coming up below us, I mean, they're internet natives. They will not have ever known the world without it. Right. And they will have anything on demand at all times and know where to find it instantly. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think radio now just means. You know the broadcast of music. I think those subscription services like you know Spotify and MediaNet, which populates Turntable.fm and Rhapsody and Napster and <clears throat> Nokia has their Groove phone. Shark. I'm Groove fond Shark. of. Yeah, yeah. I don't really embrace it. it. You you upload your own music to it. Isn't that correct? Not no. But Groove Shark, uh, it's it's hard. It's almost, it's almost hard to explain how it's different from the other ones. Like you. You pull up an artist, like name an artist that you like. Maybe, but I thought that the database was populated by consumers. Like I don't. Think I've never had to upload a thing to Groove. You Shark. found it on your own. Yeah, but I just I, right. I signed up, right? And then like I pick a band, pick Wilco for example. Mm-hmm. Say okay, not everybody's on it, right? You know, but I pick Wilco, and boom, here comes Wilco, right? And then you just up, here's all their tracks, and you drag it down to your little playlist at the bottom, right. which is or, or uh, oriented in a left to right fashion. There's a little 
thumbnail of the record cover. Right. Um, and there's some random like B-side stuff on there, maybe some live stuff. Mm. And then, you know, there's a band I really like out of Kalamazoo, Michigan, um, Great Lakes Myth Society. Mm. So then I find them, pull them down, and you can randomize it. And then if you click on the little radio station thing, that's almost like a Pandora feature. It'll find other artists that are similar. Right. So I guess it, I, I haven't used Spotify yet, mm. so I can't, maybe it's similar to that. I don't know. Spotify is more like iTunes in how you search. You search, you can create your own playlists, but mm. it's not like Pandora where it assembles for you. I mean, there are related yeah. artists on Spotify, but I mean, I think all that stuff is really about, is really valuable for bands nowadays just because your, your music has to be everywhere. Yeah. Whenever someone searches for your music, if it's on iTunes, great. But if they are on Pandora, you want it to be able to cycle through. Same thing with uh-huh. Spotify. Same thing with downloading the record from their website. I mean, you need access, access, access. I was access. gonna say accessibility. You need an access? And you need an access playing in your head to market music effectively. <laughs> uh, yeah. You need ac- you need full access at all times. Uh-huh. Um, and it's, it, with the bands that you work with, this mm-hmm. leads me to a very important question. Who takes care of getting their music everywhere? Like, mm-hmm. is that you sitting down and submitting stuff to Spotify and submitting stuff to all these places? Because I've submitted to Pandora, right. and it was a, it was a, it was a chore. Right. Uh, every, every situation is different. With but white, is it you doing this? Or? Uh, it depends. I mean, like with White Buffalo, we have a label. With the Dead okay. Trees, we've had label support. With Emily Jane, we've had label support. With the Milk Carton Kids, it's fully independent, so it's between the band and me and my trio uh-huh. of interns. You know, how many interns do you have? Uh, right now, I'm actually I don't have any. Oh. So if you're in Los Angeles, plot elephants looking. No, uh, yeah. uh, I have one starting soon. Usually, at one to two. Yeah, just depending. And That's some cool. some come into the office, some work from home. It just depends on yeah. what the need is. That's cool. I, I could use some interns. I can use all kinds of interns. They're man. helpful. Man. Life interns too, you know? Well, that's what I mean. <laughs> Laundry know? and... Whatever. Because <laughs> it's, it's at this point, just like with music, all these lines are blurred now for me. You know what I... Because <laughs> right. I work at home. I work at here. I work elsewhere. And it's like I, I you know, I'm doing... It's it's not as delineated as it used to be. Like, because it's... I'm work, I feel like I'm working 24 hours a day, I guess is what I mean. Maybe right. you feel the same way. Yeah. And it's actually funny to go back to your question of who's doing the busy work. Um, I was actually up at Joey Ryan's house, who's half of the Milk Carton Kids, um, who we'll get into a little later. But uh, we were doing a mailing of all the pre-orders of the CDs that they had received. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, oh, man, this weekend marks my one year of independence where I've left the label and I'm working for myself and I'm managing. And he was like, you never imagined that you'd be putting labels on bubble mailers. <laughs> you know, I've arrived. You know? Yeah, man. Uh, but no, I mean, but I mean, listen, it's the it's the essence and it's the spirit of independent music is just getting it done yeah. and thinking. And there is no job too small because with independent music, it's just about, you know, building it in the yeah. way that makes the most sense. And sending that those, you know, 150 packages out that day was how they were, had connected with fans who felt so excited about their record that was coming. They pre-ordered the physical product, including CD and vinyl. Wow. Weeks in advance when they knew they were going to get the record for free, which we can get into later. But, you know, the, they knew they were going to get a free digital download of the record no matter what, whether they bought something or not. Well, why don't we hear a little bit of that? You okay. know, well, we're talking about Milk Carton Kids. So okay. um, let's see here. This first track we're going to play is try, it's, uh, called New York from Milk Carton Kids. This is from the record Prologue. Mm-hmm. This is just the same one we're talking about that came out on vinyl. and yep. CD vinyl. And it came out just recently. You said July the 19th, 19th of July, which is it's, it's, it's the ink is still wet. Yeah, absolutely. It's been really exciting. We um, And at this point, we took pre-orders of the physical product, and uh, 
now is only going to be available at their shows. So okay. they're, they're about to go off on a 46-date national wow. tour, and that's the only place you can buy the physical product. We're not shipping to, to brick-and-mortar retail or any of that. It's available for free on their website. It is available through iTunes. Um, we have an exclusive. We added a bonus track for the iTunes release. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, the idea is no email required, none of that. It's just you can go to the website. You can download the full record for free mm-hmm. um, and then hopefully come out to the shows and see what it's about. Yeah, very nice. Yeah. Like, I, I'll, where, do you know where they're playing when they're in Chicago? Because I always judge like where a band is touring wise by right. by like the venues in my hometown. Like, they're going to be at Shubas. Shubas, that's exactly that's the place yeah. you want to be. Shubas yeah. or Martyrs, yeah, are the places you want to be in Chicago, man. Right. Great, if you can fill that room, you're doing you're doing pretty good. Yeah, well, they they are they're fr- they've only actually existed since February. They they both had budding solo careers. It's Kenneth Pattengale and Joey Ryan. <clears throat> um, they've done a lot of work with the Hotel Cafe, and you know they they play there often, and they were focusing on their solo careers, but they had never had like a true collaboration with anyone else beyond that. It had always been their own names. And then they met and they just started naturally playing on each other's songs live. And they were at the, uh, the Aspen Film Festival where Hotel Cafe oversees the music. So they are both playing. So they both played on each other's songs on some TV appearances. And it very naturally came together. And then they started playing shows as Kenneth Pattengale and Joey Ryan. Mm-hmm. They recorded a live record up at Zoe's in Ventura. <clears throat> gave that away. We've had over 19,000 downloads since March of this year. Um, and then they went in the studio and, and cut a new record with Eric Robinson in uh, four days. They they cut it all live. They tra- they mixed it as they went. Um, and now we're giving that away as well. Um, but my point is that they went out with Joe Purdy. Um, they did uh, 39 dates with him nationally and they supported him. They were the opening act for him, his direct support, uh-huh. as well as his backing band. And so with that, we put them in the rooms that got them in front of new fans that really got them. And yeah. it was a perfect fit. So this is their first headlining run that they're going to be going out on. And they're going to, they're, they're packaging with different friends around the country. Like the West Coast, they're doing with Andrew Bell. Tom Brousseau's joining them in the Midwest. Um, Buddy, as well, is going to play some shows in the Midwest with them. And then Gabby Marino on the, uh, on the East Coast. Throwing a lot of names around, man. Oh, really? Am I name dropping? No, not, I don't mean name dropping. <laughs> You're just throwing, you know, that's not what I mean. That's not what I meant at all. I just mean that there's like, it's it's like this network just keeps growing right like right here before me. All these I don't even people. have a cheat sheet. I know I that's should. what I'm that's what I'm saying. I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm impressed. So let's hear a little bit of this. This is sure. New York from Milk Carton Kids Prologue album on Independence Day. Just right, I never stay long enough to fight. I just run away, and it's you, my love, it's you I'm running from. You were mistaken, you are to blame. Lately, I've taken to getting my own way. Yes, it's you, my love, it's you I'm. I'll be in New York Send for me when you want more I'll be in New York Without you like before I'm never lonely Off making trails Passed on the only Woman dressed in veil Oh, it's you, my love I'm running from When 
your bed's empty Will I appear in dreams you so badly Wish could draw me near Though it's you, my love It's you I'm running from I'll be in New York Send for me when you want more I'll be in New York Without you like before Los Angeles' own Milk Carton Kids here on Independence Day with the track New York from their record prologue, which also came out, coincidentally, on the 19th of last month. That would be the 19th of July. And this record is available where? This is, uh, these, this is a duo, these guys. Right. Um, it's available for free on their website. No email required. Okay, this Just is because we talked about before, right? Yep, And exactly. you, said, you said they did vinyl, too? We have CD vinyl, um, which will be available on their tour. They're going to be uh-huh. doing 46 dates around the country. Mostly. And how much vinyl did you press? Like, what's, what's kind of, what kind of quantity is a band like this doing? We, our initial order was 1,000. Okay. And um, I think we'll, we'll blast through that pretty quickly. Looking Off at the their, top of your head, mm-hmm. do you know, what does it cost to do 1,000 vinyl records It's about in 350 a unit. Yeah, but that's that's um, that includes like initial setup costs. Reorders uh-huh. would be less. Reorders yeah. would be closer to like two. Yeah, um, I imagine that's <clears throat> probably what most people are doing with mm-hmm. vinyl these days. I mean, because that's it's it's a very uh, it's still a buzzy growing thing. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's 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 expensive. It is. Yeah, we debated like, do we do a heavier weight on this? You know, you can do yeah. the standard weight, then there's like two one eighty. The one eighty gram is the gram. way to go, man. It's great. I've, I've got the stuff that I've got in my collection. The stuff that's one eighty g is uh, yeah. is head and shoulders above the other stuff. Well, it's yeah, I agree with you. And in in this instance, we actually talked about it, and we opted to not. We opted to go standard, and the reason was, you know, they're really trying the music um, that they write and record is very simple and it, simple in its like tactic. It's two guys, two guitars, and they want, they love that kind of the um, traditional element of music. So for them, they wanted the standard weight because that's what records were on right. in the 
you know, in the sixties and the fifties, you know, and seventies. Yeah, exactly. Well, in the seventies. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, but for them yeah. with their kind of music with like the folk and Americana and like a tinge of twang, you know, they, yeah. uh, that was what was going on back then. So they wanted that aural experience. You know, it's funny, like the stuff, uh, it sounds silly, but like what I like most about maybe most about the 180 gram stuff I have is that there's less warps. Right. Because it's just thicker vinyl. Yeah. Like all the other considerations aside, it's more money and maybe it's a deeper groove, sounds fancy, sounds better, whatever. Right. But like it just bugs me to get a new vinyl thing and they, maybe you can't even hear it, but just watching it go loop, loop every time it goes around drives me bananas. I spend <laughs> the, a bunch of money th- on The vinyl this. throb. Totally. <laughs> totally. And we were talking on the break, man. You, there was a great phrase that you said. We were talking about how music has changed and evolved over the last you know, 30, 40 years. And you said something about the decade of the 2000s, the mm-hmm. first decade of the millennium. And right. what was that that you said? Uh, I was just saying that, you know, it's the it's the first decade that didn't really have its own branded genre. Um, you know, the 90s had grunge and I guess hip hop for the most part. And, you know, and the 80s was obviously, you know, dance and yeah. you know, disc, you know. And, yeah, yeah, like the, the British poppy. Yeah, the new wave, the, yeah, punk. You know, and then obviously you go back and it becomes clear and i think 2000s is when people really started truly accepting derivative music and i well, I, I think it was just we talked about it being diffused mm-hmm. um that you know the the big label stuff is and will always i guess maybe it'll always be i don't know there's probably enough enough market share that they'll be able to keep rolling along the dinosaur will just keep lumbering sure. along but uh you know for me it coincided with really you know the internet and mm-hmm. internet distribution because then you know, I didn't listen to radio per se like I used to listen to because I couldn't find a station I liked. Right. And so, you know, that's when I discovered Suffin Stevens, Iron and Wine, mm-hmm. all these bands that like, you know, maybe they sounded like stuff I'd listened to before, but I wouldn't have heard if right. it wasn't for the Internet. Right. And I, I think also, you know, the biggest change, in my opinion, across the board of the music industry is that the gatekeepers aren't there anymore. You know, it's like you used to listen to your radio station because they played the genre you liked. You trusted them to yeah. be the the advocate that the DJ would find you good music. Exactly. And you would know your music reviewer or music journalist who you trusted, you know, and you turned to because you generally agreed with them. Now it's what is the gatekeeper? I mean, you even go to something like Pitchfork. Yeah. Got to you know, help the, you. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I've, you know, I won't get into that. But uh, I think that, you know, with them, I mean, for example, like, you know, there are a slew of writers and they're all fantastic and very strong. They all have strong opinions. But the reality is when you go to Pitchfork, you don't say, oh, well, I only read this reviewer. It's a Pitchfork review. Yeah. They've lost their identity in a lot of ways. Yeah. And there are certain, like, I mean, Day Trotter, Sean Muller is an incredible, influential guy who is a music lover and incredible writer. And you know, you can tell when he's covering music. But there aren't a lot of people like that anymore who are really like you value their opinion, you turn to them. And as the gatekeeper, I think, I, you know, the whole point of it, the 2000s not branding its own genre, <clears throat> I don't think it's a bad thing. I think that the reality is that genres don't mean as much as they used to. Yeah. The bin is gone. Yeah, exactly. Because physically and metaphorically, which I like. Yeah. You know, the example I always use is an alternative music right. in the early 90s wasn't a brand. It wasn't Bush. Right. It was... Like, again, I keep coming back to Chicago. Like, an X- WXRT in Chicago at one point would play Elvis Costello, followed by Elvis Presley, hmm. followed by the Cowboy Junkies, followed by U2 and Talking Heads, of course, and then John Hyatt, hmm. and then Wilco, and then, like, Chubby Checker. 
And then, like, they were kind of like almost like a big college station. They were mm-hmm. all over the place mm-hmm. with their stuff, the, what they thought was good music. They would, weren't afraid to play any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, that was alternative music. It was just an alternative. What, whatever didn't sound like fit in the big bin right. went into this big catch-all. Whatever wasn't pop. Yeah. Right. And it was like this big, it felt like a big open-armed situation where, like, all this stuff could exist in this. And then somehow it became Bush. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know where it happened. And then now, everything crumbled. Yeah, and then it just... And then it, and then <laughs> Bush, it, Bush single-handedly brought down the music industry. Pretty much, man. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't, wanna, I, I don't even know that much about Bush. It just seems that they exemplify what became, mm-hmm. like, alternative music as, like a, right. like, a, like, a format, like a radio format. Well, it's, it's, it's actually funny. I was talking with someone the other day about this, that, like, you know, when I was in high school... I was like, oh, like I, I felt so like cutting edge and like, you know, I was in a hardcore like funk band, you know, and I loved like Rage Against the Machine and uh, Nirvana and like that, all that whole 90s movement. And I remember thinking about like, oh, like all the sellout pop music. But then looking back on it now, those were all major label artists, all highly produced and finessed records. Yeah. It, they weren't indie at all, you know, and, and I think that now genre doesn't really matter. And, you know, you look at pop records, which are done in a really creative way. And you look at independent records that are really poppy. And I think people have stopped caring about where to fit it. I remember when I was, when I was um, a marketing manager at, at the label, I, was, I would do store checks and I would go out into the field and I would count how many units we had at Tower Records and Borders yeah. and Aaron's on uh, Highland, which is no longer, uh, none of these are basically in existence yeah. anymore. And you know, I would go I and I would- Amoeba's it, I think. Pretty much, you know, fingerprints. I mean, ran down in Long yeah. Beach is great, but you know, like, you look at what I, I would go and I remember like electronic music for a while. We were releasing some electronic compilation records, and the electronic section would be dance, techno, down tempo, breakbeat, new jazz, like, and then they'd be like, now no one cares, yeah, you know, like, like washed out this new record that just came out. It's pretty electro, but people aren't looking at it like that. They're like, this is an indie record, you know. And I think that people don't care like they used to. And I mean consumers. I mean journalists will always try to put it into their, fit it into its place. But I think consumers don't care. Yeah. Well, you got to. You need something to talk about. Like, we're right. what? What are we going to call this? You know, what? For, for the people who might be a little older, who, who are still of that, you know, maybe we don't care about the genre. We're in a post-genre world. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other people who. You know, we'll still buy an actual CD and like, well, what, what, what the hell is that? Right. You know, dad and dad, you know, I remember playing stuff for my dad and, and sometimes he would like it. And, but mm-hmm. you know, now I that example carries forward. Maybe he wants to know what it's called or maybe right. your, your uncle, your older brother. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, you have like that intrinsic need to define something in your yeah. own head, but yeah. I think it's just, I guess it's just more difficult to do nowadays. I guess people still say this is rock, this is whatever, yeah. but I guess it doesn't matter as much. There aren't the scenes that that used to exist. Like you go to a rock show in LA now, um, and it's yeah. a pretty diverse audience for the most part. Yeah, rock is such. Well, rock to me is huge. It encompasses a lot of stuff. Right. But let's play a little bit more. I mean, we'll yeah. we'll talk over this one too. This is uh, this is more of Mil- the the Milk Carton Kids. This That's is right. the track Michigan getting all Sufjan on us with the two different states. New York first, now Michigan. <laughs> Coincidentally, that he, I think he lives in New York. He's from Michigan. So like it kind of all ties somehow to Sufjan Stevens. So let's play this. It's also from their prologue record on Independence Day.
Michigan that we're listening to. This is the Milk Carton Kids. New release. Came out on the 19th. This is so very nice, man. It's, <laughs> it's so um, so calming. I it like is. that. I mean, there are people who need energy right. from their music, and I, I have lots of energy internally, so <laughs> I, I actually need calm in music. It's good to keep you balanced. Yeah, totally. Yeah. This is great. Yeah, thanks. I actually, I knew Kenneth for years. I released one of his solo records a couple of years ago and we had stayed in touch and he's done film composing as well and uh, overseas primarily. And he's, you know, and I met Joey through him and we just got talking and they had just locked the Purdy tour <clears throat> and they were talking about what the next steps were. And it's just kind of, I mean, I just got really excited about it because with, I mean, obviously a musically, I mean, I really love what they do and B, they really wanted to do it differently. The idea of giving the music away, no strings attached, not working with a label. Um, they don't have a publishing deal right now. We have people interested, and we may do it. <clears throat> but so the, where where are they getting paid then? Is the uh, big question. They're making money off of some licensing, off of some other solo songs, and they're get, making money off of touring. And um, you know they they did decent numbers on the um, on the first record, the live record retrospect. Uh, you know, every night on stage, they would announce from they would announce that uh, you could go to their website and download the record for free <clears throat> off their website, but they also had CDs in the back at the merch table, and in 40 dates, they moved over 2,000 physical units. So, and they get it, and they, they they look at doing it differently where they know they had to put that money back into this release, which yeah. is their debut studio record, which it was a fuller, you know, broad uh, publicity campaign, and uh, we're going to be working uh, Americana Radio, <clears throat> and people are really supportive of it and it seems like they really people are gravitating toward the honesty of it and also the story of it which is always tricky because you want people to write about the music but people are really gravitating toward what we're trying to do differently and they put it out on the, technically it's you know the milk carton uh records which mm -hmm. is their own label and it's where you know it's all self-funded and the guys their primary reasoning is just that they want to connect with fans and they want to do something that's very natural and it's about sharing music and mm -hmm. it's about building that awareness. That's the biggest value right now. And you yeah. know, and to do it really for consumers to really take ownership and to feel like this is something new that they've discovered that hasn't been shoved down their throat that is hopefully they feel is something special. Yeah, it's not a people eat what they're fed situation. Yeah, exactly. It's people don't I, I really strongly feel that people still want great music. They just don't know because they've never tasted it. It's like a kid growing up uh, 
in, during World War II has never tasted chocolate, like in, in Denmark or something. Mm-hmm. You know, there, like you've heard stories about that. Like the kid's six years old and he's never had chocolate. Right. And the first time he has chocolate, he didn't know he liked chocolate. Right. Or, uh, you know, you just, but I think people are starving. Yeah. I mean, well, it's, I was actually um, talking with Joey, half of the milk carton kids, about this, about what really screwed the record industry. <clears throat> I don't say music, I say like the labels and recorded music. And I mean, I think. That's probably another show <laughs> we can get into it, but you know, you and I, by the way, if in case anybody hasn't noticed, we could probably talk about this yeah. for an hour a night, yeah, seven days a week. We should just do like pro- a twenty-four hour marathon we, and just four people, and they can all get to sleep. And it's a lot of content, man. But this is this is the heart of the show, though. This yeah. is what no, I it's great. my how I conceive the show. Like, what is the new model? You know, and it seems the Mill Carton kids are doing something which is exactly that. Mm-hmm. They're cr- not only you know the old model gone. They're inventing a model mm-hmm. in a in a vacuum almost. It seems mm-hmm. like, or there's a lot of people, little fiefdoms around, different people doing it different ways, and they're they're building a grassroots thing all on themselves, all unto themselves. Right. No. Totally. And, you know, and people are constantly saying, "Well, how are you making? How are you going? How are you making money, or how are you going to make money?" And the reality is, it's a it's the long term goal. And um, I don't know. I don't know if I'm actually quoting Mark Zuckerberg or if I'm quoting the Social Network Mark Zuckerberg. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, Jesse Eisenberg, uh, Mark. Zuckerberg. Yeah. Exactly. But. Um, he said uh, that the idea behind Facebook was just to do something cool. They weren't concerned with making money off of it. And I mean, what cool. an accident to have to have actually made right. billions of dollars. The milk carton kids are the next Facebook. That's all. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, but the idea is like, how... I, I hope so, man. For your sake, <laughs> uh, but the point is, you know, how do you connect with people and do something different? And to be honest, like their their goal is not to do something different. Their goal is to share their music. So my role is to work with them and figure out how do we do that in a way that is very natural that people are excited about. And I think that the way that we're doing it to share the music, I mean, just to throw some stats out, I mentioned 19,000 of the live record since March. Then we released Prologue this past Tuesday. I'm sorry, the 19th, so a little over two weeks ago. Um, We've already done over 14,000 downloads of that in two weeks. So it's building. Respectable numbers. It's great. And it's, you know, and, and... Yes, we're losing email addresses by not requiring them, but at the same time, the band wants no strings attached. They want consumers to feel like they want the fan to be excited about getting it. Yeah, and and we see the long term value in that. And at that point is when that consumer will start spending money, concert tickets, <laughs> physical just, product. It just made me think of uh, a very first hand experience in my last band in LA a few years ago. You know, the big choice was to, you know, we wanted to give away a bunch of CDs, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we were going to give away 19,000, but that would have been cool. Right. Uh, but I remember having a very heated discussion uh, with the rest of the guys in the band. There were four of us. And do we require an email address or mm-hmm. not right. to give this music away? Right. And the funniest thing of all is I don't remember for the life of me which side of that argument I was on. I mean, it's, but even my opinion might have changed since then. Maybe I was on the, you had to get an email address side and maybe that's okay too. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just another way of doing this, but right. And everybody's inventing their own. Right. And, and I think too, that, you know, I mean, people are really quick to unsubscribe from anything they feel that they're getting spammed. Yeah. I think that with the milk carton kids work, I mean, personally, not even speaking for the guys, but I'm confident enough in how people will relate and connect to this music and that the content is is good enough that people will come back for more. 
and they'll want to seek out more information. I mean, you could talk about like lazy consumers, idiot consumers, that whole mentality. But the reality is when they're excited about something, they seek out content. And those are the kinds of fans that we're building. Um, and that's what's that for me, that's, what's exciting about it. And when I was first talking with Kenneth and Joey about working with them is, was what their perspective on that kind of thing where they just truly wanted to share the music, um, and just to have it be everywhere. It's a cool ethos, man. Yeah. I hope it works. <laughs> I mean, it's working so far. Yeah. Now, so the, far so good. Yeah. I mean, the pre-sales on the upcoming tour are fantastic. Uh, that, like I mentioned, the early downloads, uh, Bruno Ibarra at um, iTunes was really supportive of the release. He gave us great positioning uh, week of release, and that made a difference. We sold a lot of digital copies. And that's what I mean. That's what's so interesting about this fan base that we're developing is every email blast, our publicist, Emily Warner at Crash Avenue, which she went out with, mentioned the free download link as well as the iTunes link. And the iTunes link had a one bonus song, which is fantastic, but it's one song. It's not like it was some huge deluxe thing. We still did great numbers, great digital numbers first week selling product through iTunes when everyone knew they could just go get it for free. Yeah. And that's digital. I mean, that, that's not even talking about physical product. That's talking about wanting to support. And then you go on to like the Kickstarter campaign for bands, which is, you know, bands set a goal and then they ask their fans to donate online to help reach that goal to record a record, shoot a video tour, whatever it may be. And I you know that films to help finance films as well. People yeah. use it for a variety of things, but that is the same kind of thing. Like you're asking fans to support your music. Yeah. And it's all, we're, it's like, we're all investing now, like mm. directly, because now you can see what you're investing in, Right. you know, once upon a time. I mean, people, I think, there's something about human nature. They live to. They like to live vicariously through their rock stars. Right. You know. So knowing that, what's the guy from Motley Crue, the singer? Uh, uh, the singer. All I can think of is Nick, Nicky, Nicky Six. Six That's right. the, he's the bass player, though. I think. Uh, well, Tommy Lee. Ta- Vince Trauma. Neal. Vince Neal. Right. Yeah, but I guess there. It's. It doesn't really make any difference. You know, they. <laughs> the. They the, would disagree. The housewife <laughs> from Lincoln is not going to go on a cocaine bender on a Tuesday at the at the Sunset Marquee. Right. But yet she kind of likes knowing that there's someone out there doing it. It's like the dude taking it easy for the rest of us sinners, you know? <laughs> Someone's out there living the life they can't lead. Right. You know, but now it's like, I, I think we're seeing a groundswell of people caring mm-hmm. and people wanting good content and people mm-hmm. wanting, by content, I mean music itself, right. music that means something to somebody, has heart and sounds like music. Yeah, Absolutely. And if your music sucks, no one's going to listen. It uh, used to be you could get I don't out. know about that, man. You There's think? a lot of sucky music out right. there. People buy a lot of it. Right, right, right. No, but but it's serving a purpose. Yeah. You know, like, serves. I mean, I... mean, I. Maybe we're talking... We're, we're limiting our... Or uh, maybe we're shifting our prism. I'm, <laughs> I, I was talking macro. Right. And, and now we've kind of narrowed it down to the kind of stuff that we're talking about that's right. growing. Right. But you're right. The content has to be good, right? I mean, that's... And I think, well, to go back to my point of what hurt the industry in, you know, the turn of the century when, with all the MP3s and, you know, illegal file sharing, I think all of a sudden the industry had to acknowledge that they weren't making great records. Yeah. And I think that the, the singles business with MP3s, you know, we talked about that at, um, yeah, at the live event that, <clears throat> um, that you don't have to just make one great song and then fill up the record with garbage. You have to actually make a record that's great. Otherwise, people are just, just going to go either steal or buy that one song and discard the rest. I think it puts it back on the industry and the musicians and the producers and labels and whoever is creatively involved to actually make good music again. And and you're right. I mean, there's a ton of horrible music out there that's very popular, but 
if your song doesn't stick, usually it's because your song's not that good. I think that, I mean, assuming that you do like a, an appropriate setup, you have your due diligence. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, you enable consumers to actually appreciate it. If they don't appreciate it, you can't really point fingers. You wrote a song that people didn't like, you know, deal with it. <laughs> I, it's, I, I view that as a much more complicated equation than that. <laughs> Having been a writer trying to reach an audience. Sure, sure, sure. But I, I'm sure there's, uh, that there's definitely a truth to what you say. Yeah. And I'm being, I'm being, you know, a little bit belligerent. Bel- yeah, I'm being very belligerent. Cold, <laughs> I'm cold hearted. I'm just being cruel. No, but I, my point is like, you know, back in like the MTV days, you'd get your video on MTV. It'd be a passive watch. You'd plop yourself on the couch for an hour. You'd watch, um, I almost said 120 minutes. For only sixty of it, and you, you know, <laughs> MTV used to actually play music videos, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. For those of you out there that don't know what MTV used to be, but my point is, like, you know, you'd watch that program for an hour or two hours, and you'd watch everything that was on it. Now yeah. you get a YouTube link to a music video, and if you don't like it, you'll you last ten seconds, and you never talk about it. So it's a mu- you you. It's an opportunity, but it's also a problem for music where you're relying on people to want to actually tell other people about your music. So if they don't care about it or they're not intrigued yeah. by it, they don't do it. They don't, they, to go viral, you can't force viral. Like, yeah, you can hire a company to go buy a half a million YouTube views for you, but it's going to end there when <laughs> they stop spending the money. Yeah. Uh, to go viral, there has to be a compelling reason why people naturally want to share it. And that's the essence of, I guess, my point of working with my artists that I'm developing, which is, you have people want to have to share it and you have to allow them to share it uh-huh. and that goes back to the milk carton kids we want to give this record away for free so that people will share it and they are what's actually funny about it is we're seeing it popping up on all the illegal actually i don't think they're technically illegal but like the rapid share media fire hot file all those um download sites the records up there for people to download for free which is usually what happens with records that you can only get if you buy them but now it's like you can go to our website and you can get it. But now it's all on all these torrent sites as well. Yeah, which which I think goes to the point of people just want to share. I think that it's human instinct to want to share to share content. Yeah, to share experiences. Yeah, well, it's like going to a concert. Right. You know, you were there. It wasn't just you know. There's you listening to your record in your room with your headphones or your your hi-fi, but then there's going to the show. Yeah. You know, and the friends you were there with. Mm-hmm. You know, how many memories are made? Uh, you know, I, I know I can think of countless concerts. You know, I can almost picture what I can picture what I was wearing, the <laughs> friends I was there with on the lawn. Right. You know, at some big place or at a small theater. The older I got, the more you know your music got narrower and more independent. And you know, even now, you know, I just saw just saw John Hyatt mm-hmm. last night. I produced an interview with John Hyatt for the other station. Nice. And he did a show at the Grammy Museum. You know, and it's it, you'd be very surprised. The guy's fifty nine years old. And, and he's not an evangelist for giving away music, but he's certainly cognizant and conscious of how the industry has changed. And he's not afraid of it, which right. I think is really cool. Yeah. I mean, it always surprised me when, you know, like Metallica spoke up against file sharing and all the, I mean, you know, mu- musicians, artists always want to share their art. I mean, they want to make money off it, but the idea is, you know, you make, you, you create something to share, right? I mean, you don't create music yeah. for, ne- to, for no one to ever hear. Yeah, I'm. I'm not excusing them, mm-hmm. but I will. I, I think it was a scary time. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, they I think represented like they were the voice of fear of the industry. Like they were, you know, a band that had kind of gotten big right before that. So they didn't have, you know, and they were plenty big. They had plenty of money, but 
they had gotten kind of big right before that wave hit. And to me, they voiced a fear that a lot of people had, kind of like Pearl mm-hmm. Jam with the Ticketmaster thing. Right. A lot of people were feeling that way. And to this day, this is a complete aside, but I still can't believe that nobody else stood with Pearl Jam against Ticketmaster. I think a lot of the big ticketing starts on the artist level, and artists just don't admit it. It yeah. starts with their man. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are situations where, like, Live Nation or someone will buy a tour, yeah, and the agents will sell the tour for 125% or 130% of what total ticket potential is. And their argument is, well, we're not making money off concession sales of food and parking and all that, so you guys can afford to pay this. That's why, you know, and if Live Nation buys a tour for over 100% of the total ticket potential, they have to charge a lot of money. It's why all those ridiculous surcharges happen. They yeah. have to gouge consumers. And, and for artists to throw their hands up and say lower ticket prices, the reality is those artists, that's where it's starting. And granted, the artist isn't the one necessarily on the phone saying, drive that up, but their management is, and the management hopefully is consulting with the artist. I mean, you know, and so I think when, you know, I think people can hide behind certain things and not behind others. Yeah. What do you think the future, I mean, so much of people's revenue stream now is from live shows. I mean, Mm -hmm. for some bands, it always was. Um, But what's the future of that? Like, is this, is this going to be where artists are making their money? Yeah. I mean, I think they always were. I think you're right. I mean, especially with big label deals, artists generally never really expected to make much money off their record sales anyway. Um, with indie labels, that can change a little bit. <clears throat> I think touring's huge. I think licensing is huge. Um, you know, there are there are still performance royalties from commercial radio and things like that, and internationally that's more alive than here, I think. Um, I think it's also about looking at new revenue streams that, you know, <clears throat> that are, that now exist online. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, with YouTube advertising and things like that, if you get 100 million views, you're going to make money off of your Google AdSense ads. And if you can sell apps and if you can sell virtual products, <laughs> you know, like the Second Life stuff, I mean, people make a lot of money off that, you know. And I think it's when you get to that kind of thing, it's about your brand and about people wanting every, like you were mentioning, like the Lady Gaga thing, people would want a Lady Gaga car in, what's it, it's called Second Life, right? I've never done it. I, I think it is called Second yeah, or Life. like a Lady Gaga tractor in Farmville, right? <laughs> that's, that's, that's what you need to do. <laughs> My, look, man, reality as it is, is complicated enough for me. Right. I have a, you know, I don't need, I mean, I, I'm very web savvy. I've been we're talking about fighting with my Wi-Fi thing on my laptop and, <laughs> but like, I don't, I don't need it to be more complicated than it is. Like keeping up with like a virtual life on top of a real life. It's like, oh my God. What's the point? Like, like I need more. Now I, now I have virtual problems to worry about. <laughs> as about they're just supposed to just real problems. And then where, does he, where do you draw the line? Right. You know, if your virtual problems become real problems. Good God, where do you, where do you hide? All right. Uh, let's 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 play some more music. Sure. I, I want to get. There's another band that you work with a lot called the Dead Trees. Yes, uh, these guys originally started out in Boston. I know yep. you're a Massachusetts guy originally, That's Western right. Mass, yep. um, and now they're kind of bi-coastal, right. New York and L.A. So let's let's give people a taste of what they're up to. This is from their record. Um, what wave is that? What it's called? That's right. It came out on the nineteenth. Yep. Um, this is the. Um, well, I don't know if it's the first track. It's the first track we're going to play. This is a track called "World Gone Global." Yeah, this is the first song. This is the first focus track off the record. Okay, and this came out. And you guys are doing digital. You guys are doing physical product with this. Well, what are you doing? We're basically we um we signed the record to Affairs of the Heart, which is a fantastic indie German label. 
Mm. And they're overseeing all the European release uh, and lively up another great indie out of Japan. So they're doing their own releases overseas. It's why, you know, we're not giving the record away here. Like, um, it would be great to do it. The band would have loved to do it as well, but you can't because there's no limitations on who downloads from where online. Yeah. Um, so they're doing like a more traditional release overseas. We're self-releasing here. Um, I, uh, we got a couple licensing placements in TV. So we basically took all of that money and hired a great publicist here in L.A., Jeff Anderson. I'll give him a shout out. <laughs> and, uh, and we're hiring and, uh, Planetary Radio, who's been a huge supporter of the band to work, college, non-com radio. And basically, we're trying to self-release here. And it's a bit of a different approach with the Milk Carton Kids because they're not touring as heavily here. But the idea is sharing the music, getting it heard, and really building that word of mouth online. <clears throat> and they're going to go tour in Europe for two weeks in September. And then we're looking at the end of the year here. And uh, they've been an interesting band because they, um, they're buddies with... Um, like they, with uh, Albert Hammond Jr. from The Strokes and Fab from The Strokes, and they've toured a lot. They've done, they did two tours with Albert, and then they did the National Little Joy Tour when that record came out, both as the supporting band and as additional musicians for Little Joy Live. And um, they've toured with The Wigs a bunch here. Um, they've toured with uh, Harmar Superstar a bit. Um, and they've played shows with a bunch of people, but that didn't get them to the point where I think they deserve to be because they were always kind of a supporting band. They were never building their own foundation. And I think that for developing an artist, you need to stand on your own two feet. Uh -huh. And I think that when people look at you as a supporting band, there's a limitation to that. And so now what we're trying to do is take a step back and really not try to jump over this, the foundation building mm -hmm. and, and just, and just try to hit big because they're on stage with little joy. Yeah. It's more to kind of build something real for themselves. All right. With that, let's Sorry. let's hear what we're talking about. That was a nice tangent. But it's like I'm like, all right, let's hear what we're talking about. Bandy, 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 band, music, music, music. So this is World Gone Global from the Dead Trees on Independence Day. Laying down by the river, watching you die.
Independence Day, World Gone Global from the Dead Trees. We've got their man. You call them? You call yourself their manager specifically? I do. Okay, that's their manager, Nick Bobetsky. He works with a lot of people, doing a lot of wonderful things for a lot of different artists. Uh, we're honored to have him here in our studio. We've got just a few more minutes to talk about all these topics. On every break, we've said the same thing when the music was playing. Nick and I could talk about this stuff for like two hours a night, seven days a week, for probably months on end. And it just it's it's what we think about all the time. Yeah. So I'm I'm very happy to share this with our audience, and I think you are too. This yeah, is, absolutely, this is it's, fantastic. Yeah. So thank you for coming all the way. My pleasure. Braving the traffic, <laughs> uh, and you can learn about what he's up to. His company is Plaid Elephant, and that's just the traditional spelling of that. PlaidElephant.com. And as always, we've got a fancy pants new website you can check out at indepthday.com. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter, indepthday. That's at indepthday, and Facebook.com/indepthday. So we're all over the webs. At least to the extent that I can handle doing this with the one-man dog and pony show. So that band, by coastal band, started out in Western Massachusetts. Now they're they're touring pretty regularly. They've got they've got some label support behind them. Yep, they're, they're headed over to Europe in September. They're going to do two weeks um, here. We're still working out um, for the end of the year to get them back on the road here. Um, uh-huh. Two of the members are currently in New York. They four piece, five piece, four piece, four piece. Okay, uh, two of them. Actually, technically now, three of them are in New York. Uh, one of them's out here, but they'll probably come back. They went to spend the summer in New York um, to write and uh, to just kind of experience something new. And then they'll yeah. probably head back. But yeah, they'll go over to Europe and tour. It's good for the soul, man, traveling and experiencing new things. Well, it's actually interesting for the band, too, because they're from Boston and they moved to Portland, Oregon, where they recorded their previous record. Uh, and then they moved down here and recorded the new record. A little Wanderlust. Yeah, it's, yeah, absolutely. So... One thing I, I've been meaning to ask this entire time, you know, we've been talking about all the bands that you work with, you know, what they're doing to find their audience, what they're doing to get music out to the people, their ethos. The, each each band has their own kind of way they're going about it. They're all different, um, you know, from Emily Jane White's, you know, success overseas and then trying to build something here. We talked about the Mill Carton Kids for a goodly amount of the program and the way they're going about their, like, whole branding. Everything is tied in together. And then the Dead Trees and what they're up to. Um, who... I mean, the, the example, I, I mean, I'll just tip my hat right off the bat. Like, who's doing this sort of thing well in terms of existing bands? I mean, Radiohead is the obvious example. They were the mm-hmm. first band to really raise the flag and say, hey, we're giving this away. Right. And they were in a position where it wouldn't hurt too much. They had a fan base. But give me other examples of bands that you think out there are bigger, but yet embracing this new model in a way that other bands aren't or artists mm-hmm. aren't. <clears throat> I think in general, a lot... I think most indie bands embrace it to a certain extent. I, I mean, years ago, people wouldn't even give away free MP3s. Now, most labels and most bands, when they release the first song that they're promoting, you can find it on blogs and you can download it and it's encouraged by the band. So I think everyone is embracing it to a certain extent. Um, I think the difference is there are a lot of strongholds on people where they can't. You know, I mean, we've if you're signed to a record label, the record label is not going to want you to give away your record. It's that simple. Um, yeah, you don't, you know, maybe they have a promotion at Burger King where they give away free right. cheeseburgers every now and again, but that's not how they make their bread and butters by giving away big, or I'm going to say Big Macs, giving away Whoppers. Right, right. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and, and it's understandable. They need to make their money, which is why I also think that it's it's important to, I'm straying from your question. Uh, bands well, just, that are doing it well. I think yeah, the, give, the give weekend. Me examples. Uh, the new, this new band, uh, the weekend. It's W E E K N D. They just gave away their record on on their website. 
it's still up there. And it's it's embracing the model of like there's no hoopla. You don't have to enter an email address. And the website is fairly uninformative. It's basically there's a video and actually it's not true. There's a one tour date promoted and then there's this record download. And a huge amount of people downloaded it. And the idea was they're sharing their music. And and that they felt like their record spoke for itself. Where if they did share it, people would dig it. Um, and I think that there's a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of bands that do that kind of thing. And it's just about who your target audience is and how you reach them. I mean, I was actually working with this fantastic songwriter and producer. His name is Dr. Rosen Rosen. Uh, I, I was managing him very briefly uh, a couple of years ago. He's a good friend of mine as well. <clears throat> and Lily Allen made her record, well, her, her label, EMI, made her record available on her website, all the stems, so you could get her acapella vocals with no music. Oh, cool. The idea being they were encouraging random people to remix and then submit the song, and technically EMI then owned the master, the blah, 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 but the point was they were spreading the music that way. I thought that was a really cool way to kind of open up to fans and to create that viral opportunity, and Dr. Rosen Rosen um, actually went and downloaded the whole record and remixed the entire record, and and it was incredible, and it was consistent, and it was just a cool. And he basically created, it, produced a new Lily Allen record, and um, I uh, I got Perez Hilton because <laughs> uh, he loves celebrity Lily Allen, whatever. And uh, he tweeted about it and and wrote about it, and in a month we had uh, over four hundred thousand downloads of it. Woo, and that's a big number. It's a big number, and it didn't make any money, and that wasn't the point. The point, I mean, it got his name out there, and he's doing Dr. Rosen Rosen's building, you know, and doing some great things right now. Um, but the point is, like that's a, an, an example. A major label, in fact, opened up the record for consumers to, to share in, and um, you know what he did. It showed that people actually cared. You know, four hundred thousand yeah. people is a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Yeah, and it's it's everything has changed so much. Like the last hour, we've been talking about this. Like my. Even with the things that I talk about all the time, like it's so interesting to talk with you about it to get your perspective on it. And like my, I've got all these ideas bouncing around in my head. We could talk about this all night, but we got to let people go do other things. And I myself am hungry, <laughs> so <laughs> we're going to wrap this up pretty shortly here. Sure. I don't think if there's anything else that I would like to kind of talk about you with here. I've got some things here. What? It's, it's a general question, but I, I'm curious to think to hear what you have to say about this. What is the future of recorded music? It's a very general question. You can answer it any way you like. Um, I won't even seed the cloud and give you any of what ideas I'm thinking of. I just want to hear what you have to say. <clears throat> I think it's the first step is going to be finding out how you can afford to create. Because if people aren't buying as much, you can't spend as much money on a record. It's just where does that money come from? We don't need to though. Well, no, that's true. You need, yeah. I mean, you can do it. You can do. You can do a home recording. You can do it on the cheap. And with even studios now, it can be much more reasonable. Um, but you still need something. You still need to. You need to. You know, whether you buy a system that you have in your house or you go to a studio, you still need some money. And then to promote it. Because just self-releasing and putting it out there, I mean, I, I talk about like the viral potential, that's true, but you still need a team to plant those seeds and to do it the correct way. It doesn't mean you need a label. A label may be the best answer, but you need some team behind you that's executing, helping to execute your shared vision. I think the future of recorded music is that you share it and there's, there are no barriers to consumers exchanging the music. 
digitally. I think people, you need to enable people to spread it wide. Naturally, easily, no hurdles. They can just get it and they can share it. I think in addition to that, it's about building your brand. And I don't mean your Lady Gaga brand necessarily, but creating value to your music where people value it enough to actually want to spend money to support it. And so I think that it's all tied together. Recorded music is almost your marketing tool mm-hmm. for your brand, which is your band. And you're going to make money on the road. You're going to make money on the road. You're going to make money licensing. You're going to like to film and TV and trailers and that sort of thing. In the advertising world, a lot of brands are putting money into uh, supporting products beyond just putting your money in their commercials, but also you know, doing sponsored festivals and Mountain Dew has their green label, which is, you know, they're actually signing singles to release digitally. Brands, you know, an advertising agency's job is obviously to get eyeballs, but it's to spend the brand's money (laughs) and they need to spend that money somewhere. If you can get that aligned with your music, you're great. You know, I think that, and I think that the dynamic's going to change. I just think that the recorded music, the digital recorded music is a marketing tool. And then if you market it correctly and you connect with the right fans, they're going to spend their money live, merch, and physical product that they're going to feel like they have a part in, uh, in owning and that they value enough to actually spend money and, and own something tangible. Maybe there's hope for the music business yet, man. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a beautiful thing oh, yeah. because it comes down to music, which is what we love. It's why we're here. Yeah. So with that, I think we've – we better stop because, <laughs> like I said, well, if you don't stop, if we don't, like, make a conscious effort to stop, I'll, I'll just keep rambling, and I'm sure you will too. Um, but I do want to ask you this. Uh, last thing, uh, ask every artist to bring in some music or at least tell me, you know, what it was that – what you know, what you grew up listening to or what you might be embarrassed about, you know, like a guilty pleasure kind of thing. Right. And I ask everybody the same question, and you, you know, wrote back with a few different answers. And I always pick the one that for some reason strikes me, it strikes a chord in me for whatever reason. Right. And one of the artists you sent back was Huey Lewis in the news. <laughs> what is the connection, your personal connection right. with this? What, what, what's the story there? Um I uh, I was seven, six or seven. I had just started playing guitar, and my mom's, my mother's, I think, college roommate was his publicist at Chrysalis. Nice. And I had been already listening to him, and he came through Great Woods and in, in Mass. And so we went to the show, and I met him, and I walked across the stage, and I met the band, and I have a signed big band. Yeah, it was yeah, it was, and uh, <laughs> that like kind of sparked for me just like the love of music. And I, I mean, I was already, I grew up on my parents' Beatles records and Jimi Hendrix and all that. But that for me kind of, it just, I don't know why I just identify that like, these are real people yeah, creating and, music. And, and I also, I'm glad you brought up Huey because my official pitch, I still, I've been telling everyone this and most people laugh at me, but now I'm actually seeing it. I'm really excited about it. I think that in rock music, the sax solo is going to come back. And I don't and mean- Clarence just died. Oh, yeah, right. Well, yeah, the boss, yeah. But I mean, yeah, exactly. But I think that in new music and music created by younger people, and it's not going to be tongue-in-cheek. It's going to be a legitimate, like, searing Huey Lewis and the new without, sax solos. Without irony. <laughs> exactly. You know what's the new Iron and Wine record has sax on exactly, it. Exactly, yeah. And I have a very low threshold tolerance yeah. for saxophone, and I dig it's, you know. It I, used to I be so abide. cool. I mean, you listen to, like, the final cut, Pink Floyd's oh, record. Oh, great and, reference, man. Yeah, and it's like they, they, they're wailing on that sax so hard. So that's my Huey Lewis full circle. And he's playing again. I heard he's doing soul music right now. Well, he's it was always soulful, though, right, what right, he was right, doing. Right. He's, I, I, you know. <laughs> I, I have sports on vinyl somewhere yeah. in my world from back in the day, and I, yeah. I wish I knew where it was. I have to dig it out. When I get a turntable, we were discussing this before. <laughs> Got all this vinyl and no turntable. Yeah. What am I? 
I'm embarrassed this. I've admitted this now to the entire universe. <laughs> so, Nick, thank you yeah, thank very, you, very man. much for fun. coming by. Come back and see us, you know, maybe bring one of your bands. I'd love to have one of them on here. Absolutely. Um, any of them, you know, whether they're in town or the guys who are local, you know, sure. other people you know of. Keep us in the loop. I will. You know, let us know Let's what you're it. up to at Plaid Elephant. Uh, and like I said, we've said this a few times. People can check out what you're about, plaidelephant.com. And, uh, again... Thank you, Nick. Yeah, thank you, man. Very much appreciate it. So next week on Independence Day, we've got musical melting pot Jack Littman. He'll be stopping by to show us how an artist can make something cohesive out of disparate influences. Thanks again to Nick Babetsky, also to the Independence Day staff, Dale Tanksley and Wayne Topinski, and to Valentina Rivera and engineer Victor Cornejo from Lancer Radio. For Independence Day, I'm Joe Armstrong, and be good to one another.